Chapters thirty three and thirty four of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter thirty three. How it happened. My dearest Elfrida, for my beastly stupidity, I deserve all the reproaches you can heap upon me, but not the utter reproach of complicity in the deception that was practised upon you. I never suspected Saviola of a design to deceive you, but the Italian was too deep for me. I went to insure you against mistake, not deception. But as I say, the Italian was too deep for me. What do you mean? I cried. Saviola had studied the route to Scotland with the design to deceive you. There were two stations on that route of similar names. One was in Kelton, in Northumberland. The other was Kilton, in Scotland. Saviola took tickets for us all to Kelton when he made us believe that they were for Kilton. We went by the night train, you remember. We got out at Kelton, near the border on the English side, believing all the time that it was Kelton on the Scottish side. There, in England, you were married regularly enough, but because it was in England, and you were a minor, marrying without the consent of your parents or guardians, therefore the marriage was illegal, null, and void. Did Saviola tell you this when you met in Paris? Yes, but I had discovered the fact, to my great dismay and distress before that. When and how? In September I was going up to Scotland for a week's shooting. I went by the same train that had carried us, but in the daytime. When we stopped at Kelton, I recognized the station at which we had got out, the hotel where we had stopped for breakfast, and the distant church, with the manse beside it, where the marriage ceremony had been performed. And yet I knew then, as I had not known on that fatal night, that we had not crossed the border. "'Then we were married in England,' I wailed. Yes, to settle the point, I asked a fellow passenger how far we were from the Scottish border. He told me just five miles. Still, I did not then suspect Saviola of having willfully betrayed us. I thought he had confused the two, Kelton and Kilton, and had made a fatal mistake. And I cursed my own stupidity in not having foreseen and prevented it. I determined to seek you both out and have the mistake rectified by another and a regular marriage ceremony as soon as possible. I did not know where to find you, nor of whom to inquire for you, since your friends were all in the Canary Islands. It was by accident only that I met him in Paris, and learned the truth from his own lips, as I have already told you. He ceased to speak. Overwhelmed as I was, I tried to make some little stand for my own dignity and self-respect. I said, The marriage, in spite of quibbles, was a marriage in the sight of God, if not in the sight of man. The good old minister, who pronounced the nuptial benediction over two young people who, at that time at least, loved each other, and who were free to wed, married us as lawfully, as sacredly, as all the United State and Church could have married us. Repudiated and abandoned, as I may be, I am still the wife of Luigi Saviola, and I will be true to myself. Though he has sacrilegiously wedded another woman, he is still my husband, and I will be faithful to him." I had by this time recovered my self-possession, and felt some regret at the paroxysm of emotion into which I had been thrown. "'Elfrida,' he said, "'this is sheer fatuity. You have no more right to call yourself the wife of Prince Saviola than you have to call yourself the consort of the Tsar. You are not a wife. You are free, free to accept the love and devotion that I lay at your feet.' I felt my heart rising again in wrath. I did not wish again to lose my self-control. I commanded myself— and, with forced calmness and some sarcasm, inquired, "'Do I understand you to be offering me marriage, Mr. Anglesia?' 
He took his hand from the back of my chair, over which he had been leaning, and walked away with a look of petulance and annoyance. Presently he returned to my side, and said, "'Dearest Elfrida, men do not offer marriage under these circumstances.' I turned, and looked him straight in the face as I demanded, "'What, then, is it that you do offer your friend's sister?' He winced slightly, but answered, "'All that a man may offer, under the circumstances, love, devotion, protection, my heart and my fortune, the use of my country seat and town house, until, ahem, such settlements as may secure your future from want. Elfrida, hear me.' And again he poured forth a torrent of insults, which pretended to be love, admiration, adoration, what you will, but which were gross insults. When he had talked himself out of breath, I only answered, "'Mr. Anglesia, you have offended me beyond hope of pardon. Leave my presence at once, and never dare to enter it again.' He did not go, but stood there, and recommenced his insulting suit. I went and put my hand upon the bell. "'Will you leave the room, or shall I call the people of the house to put you out?' "'Neither, Elfrida, you will hear me,' he said. I pulled the cord, and with such an effect that a servant quickly entered the room. "'Show this gentleman out,' I said. The man bowed and held the door open. "'Thanks, Fritz. I can find my own way. You needn't wait,' said Anglesia, with cool insolence. The man bowed and withdrew. Anglesia turned to me with a smile. Quick as lightning, I formed a resolution and acted upon it. I darted through the door leading into my bedroom, closed it behind me, and shot the bolt to secure myself. I heard him laugh as I dropped breathless into a chair. "'What is it, madame?' inquired the nurse, who was seated beside my sleeping baby's crib. "'Nothing,' I answered, and the girl, seeing that I did not mean to be questioned, became silent. Soon I heard Anglesia leave the room and walk downstairs. A little later on I rang again, and gave orders that if the gentleman who had just gone out came again, he was not to be admitted to my apartments. Then I began my preparations for leaving Geneva. I clung with all my heart and soul and strength to the conviction that my marriage was sacred. Saviola and myself were both single when we married. The venerable minister of God who united us was most solemnly in earnest when he performed the rites and gave us his benediction. We were married, and no subsequent nuptials of Saviola could affect that undeniable fact. Yet, though I felt so sure of the reality and sanctity of our marriage, I was resolved never under any circumstances to be reunited with Saviola, so long as a doubt of the fact remained on my mind. I would go, as I had planned, to Weirdwaste, and live there with my child, retaining my marriage name and title for the boy's sake as well as for my own. I made such progress with my preparations that they were completed by nightfall. Anna, my Swiss nursemaid, agreed to go with me to England, and remain with me until I could supply her place, when I would pay her expenses back to Geneva. After my tea was over that evening, and as Fritz went out with the service, I told him to bring my bill, and have it include the night's lodging, and the next morning's breakfast. He left to do my errand. In half an hour he returned, followed by someone with a firm footstep. I thought it was Anglesia, and flushed with indignation. "'A gentleman to see you, madame,' said the waiter, throwing open the door. "'Did I not forbid you?' I began, but stopped suddenly and aghast. It was my father who stood before me. CHAPTER Thirty Four, FATHER AND DAUGHTER Yes, it was my father who stood before me. He was dressed in deep mourning, and he looked older by twenty years than when I had seen him last. As I gazed on his worn face, on which there was no trace of anger, but only sorrow, 
I was suddenly smitten with remorse for all I had done to him, wrongs of which I never realized the enormity until now. The cry of the prodigal son rose in agony to my lips. Father, forgive me. He opened his arms, and I threw myself within them. He folded me to his bosom, in sorrow too deep for words. Yet I felt that I was forgiven, as I sobbed on his shoulder. After a few minutes he lifted my head, kissed me, and led me to the sofa. When I had dropped upon the cushion he sat down beside me, put his arm protectingly around me, and then he spoke for the first time. It is I who need forgiveness, I who left my poor motherless little girl for long years to the care of hirelings and eye-servants, who betrayed their trust and left her an easy prey to villainy. Yes, it is I who need forgiveness, Elfrida, my child. Can you forgive me? Oh, father, father, do not speak so to me, to me who sinned against you so grievously, to me who ought to be on my knees at your feet, I said. And in the excess of remorse that his patient, forgiving words inspired, I would have kneeled to him, but that he stopped me and drew me again to his bosom. We spoke no more to each other for a few moments. At last, he said, in a broken voice, Did you know your poor stepmother was dead, Elfrida? I thought so from your morning dress, Papa. I am very sorry for you, I replied. She passed away in the Canaries five weeks since. I have the comfort of knowing that everything which human power could do was done for her. I devoted the last twelve years of my life solely to her, going with her wherever there was any hope for benefit. And for this cause I left my poor motherless child exposed to the beasts of prey that infest this world. Father, dear father, say nothing more of that. I am alive, and since you have forgiven me, I am almost happy again. Dear father, let us live for each other now. I will be the most loving, the most faithful, devoted daughter that ever parent had. I will live for you, father, only for you, and, and for my child, my boy. Your child, Elfrida, he said, staring at me, while a shiver passed through his frame. Yes, the child of my willful, unfortunate marriage, dear father. I wrote and told you all about my marriage, but I fear you never got my letter. No, he said, with a visible effort to recover from the shock he had received. No, I heard of your marriage from other sources, and not until I returned to England, three weeks ago, with the remains of my wife, for interment in the vault at Enderby Castle. The news met me there. Terrible news to meet a father coming home to bury his wife. Oh, my father, oh, my father, can you forgive me? I cried out at this. I could not forgive myself, child. I never dreamed of blaming you. Does anyone blame the bird that is snared? He tenderly inquired. You are too merciful to me, too merciful. I do not deserve it, I said, covering my face with my hands, for my father's kind words pierced my heart like poniards. Hush, child, hush. Do not reproach yourself so bitterly. Let me tell you how it was that I did not receive any tidings of your marriage until my return to England. I know, dear father, it was because you were far away in the Canaries. That was not all, my child. Listen. While I was still in the archipelago, late in October— I received a batch of letters from England, all bringing me good news of my son and daughter. There was one from you, telling me of your fully restored health and good spirits, and your desire to spend the winter at Brighton. Another from Miss Murray, giving a very flattering account of your progress in education. A third was from Madame de la Champ, much to the same effect. Those letters were written only three days before my hasty marriage— and, oh, believe me, Papa, before I even dreamed of taking such a hasty step, I earnestly declared. I do believe you, my child. You shall explain later. 
The same mail brought me a long letter from your brother who had gone to Eton. He told me of his long summer vacation spent with you at Brighton, and he corroborated the intelligence given by yourself and your governess as to your health, good spirits, and rapid progress. He also asked leave to spend the Christmas holidays with you at Brighton. Here I sighed so heavily that my father stopped and laid his hand on mine in sympathy, while he resumed. All these letters gave me great satisfaction on account of my dear children. They were especially comforting to me at that time, as I was about to leave the archipelago for the Canaries. I did not notice then that Glennon had omitted to say one word about his own health, which was always delicate, he having inherited the constitution of his mother. He looked well when he left Brighton, I ventured to say. Yes, but he did not continue well after resuming his studies. The same mail that brought me his letter brought one from one of the physicians at Eton. I had overlooked all my other correspondence in dwelling upon the letters from my children, but at length I took up one in a strange handwriting, which on opening proved to be from the physician who had been attending my son, for some seemingly slight disorder in his health. This Dr. Fletcher wrote to me to say that the state of my son's health was such that Glennon should leave Eton, and have a thorough change of air, scene, and diet. He suggested that he should have a traveling tutor, and go to a warmer and drier climate. "'I had heard that he went with you to the Canaries,' I said. "'Yes,' continued my father. "'I quickly made up my mind, in regard to Glennon. I wrote to my two old friends, Dr. Alexander and the Reverend Mr. Clement, asking them if they could procure substitutes to fill their places at Weirdwaste, and accompany us to the Canaries for the winter.' the one to take charge of the young Viscount's health, and the other to direct his studies in a very moderate manner. "'I heard, too, that the doctor and the vicar joined your party,' I said. "'Yes, though I scarcely ventured to hope that they would, and really I was as much surprised as pleased when I received letters from them, accepting my offer, and promising, according to my request, in case of their acceptance, to go to Eton, join my son, and accompany him to Gibraltar, and there await the arrival of our steamer.' My father paused for a few moments, looked at me remorsefully, and said, "'I little knew how I was about to leave my dear, only daughter, my poor motherless girl. We sailed early in November, but before sailing I answered your letter and those of your teachers, expressing the great satisfaction I felt in your improved health and good progress, thanking your teachers for all their supposed zeal and care, and telling you that you should winter at Brighton while we were at the Canaries.' "'Oh, I never saw that letter, father. "'I had gone on my mad journey before that letter came,' I said. "'I know it now, my dear. "'I did not know it then, "'when I said in cheerful confidence "'that I had left you so safe and happy. "'At Gibraltar, your brother, "'with the vicar and the doctor, joined us, "'and in a few days we sailed for Santa Cruz de Tenerife. "'Where were you then, my dear?' "'I was in Paris, "'anxiously waiting for an answer to the letter I had written you, "'announcing my marriage, "'and asking your forgiveness.' a letter which I missed by leaving the Grecian archipelago before it arrived. And, oh, how long in my ignorance, how long I waited and hoped to hear from you. As I waited and hoped to hear from you, not understanding your silence, after we had been some weeks settled at Santa Cruz, I began to be seriously uneasy at not hearing from you, as I had especially requested you, in my last letter, to direct your answer to Santa Cruz de Tenerife. But the countess urged that you would probably wait to hear of our arrival before writing. Then I wrote to you, and waited for an answer. None came. Then I wrote to the postmaster at Brighton for information, 
and in due time received an answer that your whole party had left the town, without leaving any directions at the post-office where letters should be forwarded. This I attributed to carelessness on your teacher's part, and inexperience on yours. I left too suddenly and too madly to have thought of such a provision, and I know not how my governesses left after they discovered my flight. I know how they left, but I did not learn until later. From the postmaster's imperfect information, I judged that you had returned to Weirdwaste. There I addressed my next letters, with no more success than had attended all the others. I received no answer. I was uneasy, but not anxious. I thought that you were living under the care of your teachers at Weirdwaste, and I hoped from week to week to hear from you, and ascribed my disappointment to any other cause than the real one, to negligence, to irregular mails, and so forth and all that time I was going from city to city with my husband, leaving always directions where my letters should be forwarded, and hoping always to hear from you. Ah, well, my dear, we were at cross-purposes without knowing it. The summer came, but brought no increase of health to my poor wife. She grew worse, and my great anxiety on her account began to absorb all my thoughts. I ceased even to look for a letter from England. I understand, dear father, the present and real calamity dulled your sensibilities to imaginary troubles. In a measure, and for a time, but at length I wrote to the steward at Weirdwaste to ask why I did not hear from you or your teachers. But, ah, before there was time for an answer to return, my poor wife died, and I got ready to bring her remains to England. My dear father, I took the casket first to Enderby, where, having been previously embalmed, it lay in state in the drawing-room. The funeral was advertised for the eighth day after the arrival of the body, and I used the interval in going quietly down to Liverpool, and taking steamer to Ireland, en route for Weirdwaste, to fetch my daughter on to Enderby for the funeral. It was at Weirdwaste that the news of your marriage first met me. Oh, father, but you have pardoned me, and so they knew nothing of it at Enderby? No, my dear. Consider the remoteness of each of these seats from the busy world, and their distance from each other. Enderby on the northwest coast of Northumberland, Weirdwaste on the west coast of Ireland. No, my dear, no hint of your marriage had reached Enderby, nor would it ever have reached Weirdwaste but for one circumstance. And that, my father? Was the fact of your old governess, Miss Murray, having left a portion of her effects at Weirdwaste. The old lady wrote to the steward, telling him of your sudden marriage and of the consequent cessation of her services, and requesting him to forward her effects, of which she enclosed a list to a certain address in London. Though the steward and the housekeeper both wrote to the governess when they sent her boxes, imploring her to give them more particulars of their beloved young lady, she gave them none, merely saying in the letter in which she acknowledged the receipt of her property that you had married and had gone away. More than that she said she knew nothing. I bowed my head in sorrow. I realized what my dear stricken father must have felt to hear such news at such a time. But I know he never, even in thought, reproached me. I made every inquiry, but could learn no more at Weirdwaste. I went back to Northumberland, to Enderby, and remained until after the funeral of my dear wife. Then I went down to Brighton to make inquiries there. I found the house where you had lodged, to which all my letters had been directed, but the landlady could tell me nothing more than that the young lady had been missed one day, and that at the end of the same week the two old ladies had given up their apartments and had gone to London." and that subsequently she had heard a report that the young lady had gone off to Scotland, with the Italian, to be married, but she did not know the truth of the matter. I do not know how the report could have got out except through my teachers. Of course it was through them. 
When I could hear no more, I went up to London to transact some business with my banker. I did not like to ask any direct questions of him concerning you, nor did I have any strong hope of hearing news of you in that quarter. Nevertheless, when our accounts had been overhauled, I did venture to remark. My daughter has not drawn on you of late, I perceive. Not for a year, he said. And that reminds me, he continued, that I had a letter from Her Highness last summer, inquiring your lordship's address. I believe it was from Geneva. I cannot lay my hands on it at this time. But, yes, I am sure it was from Geneva. How glad I am that I wrote that letter. The banker's prompt reply was the first clue I got to your whereabouts, as the banker's news was the first clue you got to mine. Yes, my dear, I did not ask a question, burning as I was to hear more of you. How could I ask that comparative stranger for information respecting my daughter, with whose movements I should have been perfectly familiar? I did not even know why he called you Her Highness. I left England that same afternoon, and came as fast as steam could bring me to Geneva. Here I am, but I do not even know the name of your husband. Again I dropped my head upon his breast. I had so much to tell him, besides the name of my husband. But he was waiting patiently for my reply. I gave it. End of chapter 34